0: So, good morning, everybody. Okay, (laughs) so we come now to the third day of this retreat and we will start with about 25 minutes of silent meditation. Okay, good morning everybody. So I think we can start. And again, we'll begin with the verse of homage to the Buddha. Namo tasa bhagavato adahato sammasambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambudasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama Okay, we continue now with our examination of the Maha-Mangala Sutta and just just get an overview of the territory that we covered yesterday. We went through the earliest, the way I divide the verses up, we went through the stages that deal with the proper orientation, gaining a proper orientation in life through cultivating the conditions for discretion, then establishing secure foundations, the inner and outer requisites for leading a wholesome, virtuous, beneficial life, then preparing oneself through education, training, a code of discipline, then leading a virtuous life in the world, particularly by fulfilling one's family responsibilities, and then extending one's beneficence towards the rest of society, becoming thereby a pillar of society. Okay, now, all of these, all of this material that we covered yesterday pretty much, I would say, comes within the scope of the broad general idea, Indian idea, of leading a life governed by Dharma. Dharma in this very broad sense of that principle or law of goodness and of truth that sustains one in one's endeavors to avoid misery and degradation and to lead an upright, virtuous life. And even though these principles are articulated with, I would say, with utmost purity and precision in Buddhism, but on the whole they're not unique to the Buddha Dharma, but they would have been shared by the followers perhaps of Jainism, the segments of the Brahmins who were not really sold <laughs> dogmatically on the caste system. And so these kinds of principles are actually formed the substance of the dharma that was promulgated by the great Buddhist emperor, King Ashoka, about a hundred years or so after the time of the Buddha. So King Ashoka was ruling over many different segments or communities in India, different religious and spiritual communities, yet he promoted dharma very much like these verses that we've covered yesterday, not tying them uniquely to the Buddha's teaching. Okay, but now with verse verse 7, the way I understand it, we're now entering gradually upon the special and unique domain of the Buddha's teaching. So with this verse, we're starting out by making the commitment, that specific commitment to following the Buddha Dharma. And so let us recite the verse and translate it. Then we'll take. Then we'll explain each of the expressions. Okay, so in Pali, arati virati papa. Arati virati papa. Majapana damesu do chamesucha A Tang Mangalamutamang A Tang Mangalamutam So Arati is stopping or seizing virati is abstinence and this is seizing and abstinence papa from evil from wrong behavior. Then, majjapana are intoxicating drinks. And sanyamo is refraining from or restraint from intoxicating drinks. Then, appamada it's diligence or heedfulness. And it uses the word dhamma in the plural. So, dhamma as a plural can have many meanings. So, there are also bad dhammas, akusala dhammas. But here, what's implied are kusala dhammas, wholesome uh, qualities and wholesome practices. So this is the supreme, highest blessing. And now when we consider like, what is meant by seizing and abstaining from evil? So what are these evil deeds? Basically, these will be the deeds that are covered by the five precepts. So, seizing and abstaining from killing of living beings, from stealing, from sexual misconduct, and from false speech. And of course, as the fifth precept, abstaining from intoxicating drinks would also be covered. But that, interestingly, it's singled out for separate mention. And now, if you remember in yesterday, we covered, in the earlier verse, Vinayocha susikito a code of conduct good to train in, which we explained as the five precepts. And then we came to Dhammacharya, um, righteous conduct, which also corresponds closely to the five precepts. At least to four of them are included in Dhammacharya. So the question that comes to mind and came to my mind when I studied the sutta long ago is what is the difference in the observance of the five precepts at these in these different verses? And the way I come to interpret this is that the, the ver- that the, the sutta is not redundant, even though the five precepts are coming several times, but rather in different stages. In different verses, the five precepts take on a different function. So in the earliest verse, where it speaks about a code of conduct good to train in, this is preparing the young person, equipping the young person with a code of discipline to guide them as they enter upon that adventure of independent life, adult life. Then under righteous conduct, observance of at least the first four guidelines to right conduct that is those are the guidelines for one who is now a mature adult to guide them in becoming a righteous, respected person in society, one who is living an ethical life within their community, their broader society. But when we come to this verse, seizing and abstaining from evil by observing the five precepts. The way I understand it, at this point, one is making that specific commitment to observe the five precepts as part of the training in the Buddha's path. So, if you know the procedure, typically when a person decides to embrace the Buddha Dharma, what they do is to take the three refuges Then, right after the three refuges, the five precepts will be administered. And so, though the five precepts are entering here implicitly the third time, what's different is the function and role of the five precepts. So, at this point, we're making, I would say, the transition from the social ethics to The personal ethics as part of a path of spiritual training. And even though in the later verses we're going to move into the cultivation of the positive wholesome qualities, here we have in this first line principles of restraint, of seizing and refraining. And this is quite typical of the way the Buddha teaches, Even if you know the formula for the four right efforts, so the first effort is to abandon, to prevent the arising of unwholesome mental states, then to abandon arisen unwholesome states. Only then, with the third right effort, one comes to cultivating wholesome mental states, and then the fourth, maintaining and maturing the arisen wholesome states. It doesn't mean that one first has to eliminate all the unwholesome before one could start to develop the wholesome but the general sort of from a logical rather than a temporal point of view one has to at least start to remove the unwholesome in order to create space in the mind and in the heart for the wholesome to start to emerge and to blossom this is a little bit like a gardener Who wants to develop a garden first the gardener has to take a survey of the garden and then to remove the weeds uprooting the weeds only then can the gardener start to plant the beautiful flowers or vegetables whatever they want to plant okay now the commentaries explain sort of building on the way these words are used in the suttas. Here's my scratch pad. Okay, here it is. Explain that there are three levels, three kinds of virati. Virati is abstinence or restraint. So, I don't want to overwhelm people with Pali words, but, but it's just useful for me. Okay, sampatavirati. This is the kind of abstinence or restraint that takes place, I would say, in a natural and ordinary, under natural and ordinary circumstances, where one hasn't undertaken a specific code of discipline But one encounters a situation where one is tempted to do something that would violate the principles of basic ethics. And yet one then reflects through on one's past training, one's upbringing. One knows, ah, that is wrong. I shouldn't do that. And just naturally one abstains. For example, if we go back to the time when I was eight years old, the story that I told you yesterday, when I saw that pen and pencil set in the store window and my mother left her pocketbook on the table. (laughs) Now, if I was properly reflecting properly, I would have thought to steal my own mother's money (laughs) is wrong and I would have left the pocketbook there. But instead, (laughs) being a bad boy, (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so this is natural, we call it natural abstinence or abstinence on the basis of just personal reflection. And this, even though it's good, is a good quality to have, but it's relatively weak because temptations can be strong and thereby one could violate. Even the precepts or principles that one knows to be that one knows one should be observing. So then we come to the next second type of observance or second type of abstinence. This is called samadana virati. This is abstinence through samadana means undertaking, and that means the undertaking of precepts. So in this case, one undertakes, for example, the five precepts, and then when one encounters a situation where one is tempted to do some unwholesome action, one then considers, I have undertaken these precepts before in front of, say, the Buddha image and in front of my teacher and preceptor, I've undertaken these five precepts. So if I were to violate this precept, I would be transgressing my pledge to the Buddha and to my teacher and preceptor that I will observe, live in accordance with these precepts. And so this is the stronger type of observance based on undertaking precepts. The third kind of abstinence is called samucceda virati. Cheda means cutting off or eradicating, and this is the kind of abstinence or restraint that takes place in a noble person, the Arya Pugala, one who has reached the level of attainment or realization by which they have eradicated the defilements that can lead to this unwholesome action. So it's said, for example, in the case of the stream enterer the one on the first stage of enlightenment, that they're incapable of violating, deliberately violating the five precepts. So that possibility of breaking the precepts has been cut off. Okay, then comes the next mangala or blessing. Okay, we could take it from here. Is refraining from intoxicating drinks. And now I'm not going to give a sermon now on the need for... Um, for temperance or for total for, in, in favor of prohibition and my understanding is that in ancient in, you know in say French culture there is the practice of having like wine with one's meals and social and social occasions drinking a little wine from my understanding in ancient Indian culture there was no such practice like that no such uh, a tradition like that, but when people drank intoxicating drinks, they did it to get drunk. (laughs) And so some people might argue that it's possible under normal social conditions to drink, take a little drink, you know, at a meal to have some wine, or a little drink with friends, And I'm not going to argue and say you have to observe this completely, strictly, except if one has formally taken the precept, one should observe it strictly. I'm not going to say, though, that having a little wine at a meal is going to impel one to go out and start killing and stealing and so on. But the general, I think, the Buddha, you see, in the Code of Five Precepts, the first four precepts are definitely unwholesome actions. The fifth precept, looked at in itself, is not unwholesome. But, but the Buddha understood that when people drink and then they can't control their drinking, and often people who think they can control their drinking deceive themselves about it. That's just so common. But once people start drinking, then they lose their sense of restraint, of self-respect this sense of conscientiousness, and then it's very easy, relatively easy to fall into violations of the other four precepts. And so one could start lying, maybe boasting falsely, or lying to one's family and friends to cover up. When you come home, your wife asks, were you drinking? Oh no, I was doing some work at the office. And then, if one is in hard times, then one could start stealing. If one meets an attractive but potential sexual partner, one starts breaking the third precept. And even one loses the sense of restraint to such an extent that one can kill. And in fact, we have here, this is a the passage in that same sutta that i referred to yesterday where the buddha lists many factors of the basic moral life sutta number 31 in the Nikaya. so the buddha speaks about six negative consequences of indulging in intoxicants so there's loss of wealth since one starts spending all of one's money on first on drink and then one starts spending on other things without any consideration of how much one is losing. Increase of quarrels, people start fighting, they resort to violence when they get drunk, one becomes more susceptible to disease, one gets a bad reputation, (laughs) shameless exposure of the body. Maybe people do that when they... I remember years ago in graduate school, we went on an outing and some people were drinking and then there was one graduate student, he got up on the table and started dancing. (laughs) And afterwards, when we reminded him of that, he kept on denying it. No, no, no. (laughs) And then comes the weakening of the intellect. Though I think that there are some probably very intelligent people who drink, but when one is under the influence, then... The intellect is not able to function with maximum sharpness and flexibility. And then I just, out of curiosity, I went to Google and I put in alcohol, I searched for alcohol consumption problems or dangers, and I came up with a list, and it struck me that it so corresponds so closely to this list going back 2,500 years. So alcohol use, here they say in large amounts, can cause things like car crashes, falls, burns, drowning. Intentional injuries such as gun violence, sexual assault, domestic violence, on-the-job injuries, loss of productivity, increased family problems and broken relationships, and I think a very high percentage of broken homes in America due to alcohol consumption, alcohol poisoning, number of diseases, liver disease, nerve damage, sexual problems, brain damage, and so on. This was drug-free world, drug drug facts, alcohol. Okay, so this takes care of restraint or refraining from the use of intoxicating drinks and, I would add, besides drinks, means drinks, but more broadly, any kind of intoxicating substances, whether they are drunk, smoked, injected, and swallowed. And then the last item here, it's a very broad category. The key word is upamada which means it's the absence of Pumada. Pumada is what we translate as heedlessness or negligence. Okay, so I, for a formal definition, I went to the commentary, and I found the commentary of heedfulness as working carefully, working consistently, working persistently, for the development of wholesome qualities doing one's duty not relinquishing desire not relinquishing the task so this is persistence and consistency in cultivation and then the buddha praises this factor of heedfulness very highly for example he says that just as the footprints Of all living beings that walk fit into the footprint of the elephant, and the elephant's footprint is declared the chief with respect to size, so whatever wholesome states or qualities there are, they are all rooted in heedfulness, converge upon heedfulness, and heedfulness is declared to be the chief among them. And then in the Dhammapada, There's a whole chapter, chapter 2, devoted to heedfulness. In fact, the first verse in this chapter, I don't have it here, but it says that heedfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path of death. Those who are heedful do not die well, I mean, that shouldn't be taken too literally, <laughs> whereas those who are heedless, even though they're alive, they're as, it is as if they are already dead. And so this verse says, by heedfulness, which goes along with things like self-discipline, self-mastery, the wise one can make a flood uh, an island that no flood can overwhelm, the foolish person indulges in heedlessness, But the wise keep heedfulness as the best treasure. Do not give way to heedlessness, which goes along with qualities like self-indulgence, laxity, slackness. And then the heedful and meditative attain great happiness. And to give special emphasis to the quality of heedfulness, The Buddha, just before he was to pass away, his very last words were, All conditioned things are subject to vanish via Dhamma Sankara. Attain the goal through heedfulness. The older translators used to use, Strive on with diligence. Okay, so this takes us now to verse eight. And so with this verse, we could say verse seven, we are removing or suppressing, trying to eliminate the unwholesome qualities of the mind by leading the first two abstaining, refraining from evil, refraining from intoxicating drinks refer to physical actions and speech. And then heedfulness in wholesome qualities indicates cultivating of the mind, cultivation of the mind, trying to remove the unwholesome qualities from the mind, and then to create space for the wholesome qualities to emerge and to start to flourish. And so with the next verse, we begin Cultivating the inner virtues. And so let's take Pali. And here I should actually expand this. I say cultivating inner virtues. And wisdom. Because wisdom is also being some of the factors or blessings here. Refer more specifically to wisdom rather than virtuous qualities. Okay, so let us read the Pali and then examine these factors. Garavocha nivatocha. <coughs> Garavocha nivatocha. Santuti cha katanyuta. Santuti ca, katanyuta. Katanyuta. Yeah, that N with the wiggle on the top It's a little bit like the N in First N in onion Or the N-Y in canyon Kalena okay. Dhamma Kalena Dhamma Savanam Etang Mangalam Uttamam Etang Mangalam Okay, so Garavo Means reverence or respect And it's actually, the word garavo is related to the word <laughs> guru. <laughs> yeah, you see the word guru, which comes to mean like a spiritual teacher, More it's used more often in Brahmanism than in Buddhism. But the original meaning of guru is heavy. And so the person to whom one ascribes a heavy significance, the significant other in one's life. Not one's spouse, but in terms of spiritual training, the heavy one is the guru. And so the proper attitude towards the guru is one of reverence and respect. And so from guru, oops, one gets a certain process of word transformation. You can see it more clearly in the Sanskrit, Gaurava. So this is reverence. And then Nivato is humility. Then Santuti is contentment. And Katanyuta is what we translate as gratitude. Then comes Kalena. Kalena means in time or at the proper time. Dhamma Savanang, listening to the Dhamma, hearing discourses on the Dhamma. So this is the supreme or highest blessing. And it's interesting and I think it's an extremely important point here. that when we come to cultivating the inner virtues and wisdom, the first quality that is mentioned in this verse is reverence and respect. Because it's reverence and respect, this is in the context of the Buddha-Dharma, towards the Buddha as the Supreme Teacher, Respect and reverence for the Dhamma itself as the teaching, respect and reverence for those who transmit and teach the Dhamma, that is what opens up the mind and makes it accessible to all the other teachings that follow. If one doesn't have that respect, you know, one comes to the Buddha sort of to listen to the Dhamma, but one has the attitude, you know, what does he know? You know, this, we're in a democracy now, everybody is just as good as everybody else, so let me just look at the teaching as critically as I can. And what are these monks or nuns teaching the Dhamma? They shave their head, they put on these special robes and they think they're something special, but you know, we don't have to have any respect for them. And what is this Teaching just, you know, there's one teaching, another teaching has it's just an opinion of one one man who says, I'm the enlightened one. So if one doesn't have that respect, then you know, you could become like a brilliant scholar of Buddhism <laughs> and write, you know, books and papers and articles and get awards. And but one is not going to develop along the path of dharma. So to develop along the path one has to open up one's mind with respect and reverence. And so this is the you know, special spiritual meaning of reverence. But I also think one could give this quality of reverence or at least respect a broader meaning the way I tried to see it in contemporary life, to have initially a respect for every other human being regardless of their degree of knowledge, whatever religion or faith they're following, or no faith at all, whatever tradition they come from, whatever ethnicity, color of skin, religion that they're following, but to have a basic respect for all human beings, just by virtue of their humanity, to recognize and to develop this respect. What I find is useful to reflect on the fact that every human being as I call it is a center of subjective experience. So everybody in a sense is the center of their own world. And we could say that the world is in a sense reflected in every other in every human being, in every person. I know there's a saying in the Jewish religion that if one saves the life of a human being, one is saving the whole world. So because each person is a not only located within the world but is in a sense an embodiment of the world and a reflection of the world. So one should treat all beings with, or at least all human beings, with a certain degree of respect. And then one should always try to look for the good qualities and virtues in other people, even if somebody has many bad qualities, but they might have, you might be able by (laughs) examining them closely, you know, you might be able to find a few good qualities. Sometimes it's difficult. (laughs) Okay, then sort of the counterpart of reverence is humility. Oh, before we go on to humility, I just had uh, some uh, textual passages here on reverence. So there's a sutta where the Buddha mentions seven objects of reverence. So there's reverence for the teacher. This is... The word used here is satta, which is a reference to the Buddha himself as the teacher. Reverence for the Dhamma, reverence for the Sangha, reverence for the training, reverence for samadhi, concentration. Reverence for heedfulness, that's what we just covered, and reverence, this is interesting, for hospitality, that is when one has guests and visitors, one treats them kindly gently generously then other objects of reverence mentioned is one preceptor spiritual teachers parents elders and then things which represent the triple gem like stupas those are memorial shrines which often have relics of the buddha or saint deceased saints within them B- images of the buddha or great disciples relics and books on the Dhamma. Okay, so then the counterpart to reverence is humility. So whereas reverence means that one looks outward towards others and sees what are the good qualities in others, what are the weighty qualities in others that make them worthy of reverence, with humility, one looks back at oneself, and one sees certain factors on the basis of which pride or conceit might arise. The texts mention, and this is again, this is coming in in ancient India, where there can be a conceit based on birth. This is one's social class. So the Brahmins and the Kshatriyas. The Kshatriyas were the rulers, the administrative class tended to have a pride and to look down at those from the other castes, then one might be proud because of one's beauty, one's wealth, one's education, various skills, success in business, learning, eloquence in speaking fame, praise from others, the size of one's retinue and (laughs) admirers. And now with Facebook, you know, you can get, you know, keep on... People send friend requests and you want to show how many friends you have, so approve, 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 till you reach what is it, the maximum? 5,000. <laughs> and then you look, uh, my colleague has only 300 friends, I have 3,000 friends, <laughs> much better than they are. And then those who, even ascetic monks who practice, undertake the ascetic practices, think, like, I eat only one meal a day. I um, I wear rag robes I live in the cemetery <laughs> that's one of the one of the practices or even skill and meditative attainments all of these can become subtle the of conceit or pride or vanity and so when one develops this conceit, then it becomes an obstacle to one's practice. And so no matter what kinds of skills one has, whatever practices one undertakes, whatever achievements one might reach, one has to develop an attitude of humility towards those achievements. And so I have some notes here that the humble person is soft and gentle and can be easily trained. And also what's extremely important in the group is that the humble person can get along easily with others, whereas the proud person always wants to be given special treatment and if they are just treated as an equal, they resent it and they'll get into conflict with others. And also the humble person, just like the respectful person, the humble person can accept advice and correction Whereas the proud person, if one tries to give them advice, instructions, some guidance, they'll think, who are you to talk to me? I'm better than you are. Well, don't talk to me. I'm accomplished. And Then I found here a sutta. I think this is the Nikaya. Okay, so this is the difference between what is called the bad person, the asapurisa, and the good person. So the bad person, and he's, Buddha speaking in a monastic context, is one who has gone forth from an elite family, and he thinks, I've gone forth from an elite family, but these other monks have gone forth from lower class families. So he praises himself and disparages others because of his family. But the good person thinks it's not because of one's elite family that greed, hatred, and delusion are destroyed. You know, somebody coming from the humble family can enter upon the right way of practice, and should be honored for that, praise for that. And so putting the practice first, he doesn't praise himself nor disparage others because of family. And then this is applied to many other things besides family. Okay, so how does one overcome conceit and develop humility? So I was reflecting on this. I came up with two lines of contemplation that one could use. One is based on karma. So one thinks that whatever positive assets one might have, whether it be one's social class status, one's wealth, physical beauty, intelligence, education, educational accomplishments. This one could see this is the result of my past karma. And so it was done by myself, maybe in past lives, And it's just the result that's come to me in the present. So I shouldn't build up too much trust upon it. And then I should consider it's the deeds that I do in the present that will bring their results in the future. And so avoiding pride and vanity, I should be humble and do good deeds now. And the second line of reflection is to use the teaching of anatta or non-self. You know, you don't have to have penetrated by direct insight the selfless nature of all phenomena, but one could just one study the teachings and knows, at least conceptually, the teaching of non-self. And so one uses the reflection, whatever assets, good qualities, benefits one has, this is looked at with wisdom, this is not mine. I am not this, this is not myself, and that helps, you know, it's not that you do it just one time and you're going to eliminate pride and develop humility, but if you do this as a regular practice, the way I explained yesterday, it develops these kind of tracks or grooves in the mind, so that the mind starts to flow in that direction. And in that way, one becomes humble and this humility manifests in bodily action, in speech and mind. Okay, the third mangala or blessing in this verse is contentment. And this is extremely important in the monastic life where one has gone forth and one is dependent upon the generosity of others for one's basic requisites. And so we're taught again and again that we should not be too demanding upon others because others offer to support us, but we shouldn't sort of take advantage of the generosity and kindness of others by demanding things from them. And so it's said that to explain contentment, that the monk is content with any kind of robe, and speaks in praise of contentment with any kind of robe. And when he, if he doesn't get a robe, of course it means that he doesn't get a new one, he's not going to go around n- <laughs> naked. But if he has to use his old robe for a long time, he doesn't get agitated. And if he gets a new robe, then he might discard the old one and make use of the new one without being attached to it. And he doesn't... In humility, he doesn't praise himself and disparage others because of this. And that applies to the other requisites like alms food, dwelling place. And then the fourth here is that the monk finds delight in meditation and delight in overcoming defilements, but he doesn't praise himself or disparage others because of this. And then I found here a passage. This is from a sutta which deals with the kind of contentment for a layperson. Okay, so the layperson works and acquires wealth, and then when he thinks that I've worked, at, I've done my work and acquired this wealth, he experiences happiness and joy. That's the happiness of ownership. When he thinks that I can make use of this wealth, then he experiences the happiness of enjoyment. Then when this person is free from debt, a problem in ancient India, even more severe today, then he thinks, I have no debts to anyone, whether large or small, and then he experiences happiness through freedom from debt. But what the Buddha praises is the highest type of happiness is the happiness of blamelessness that one behaves blamelessly by body, speech, and mind, and then one thinks, I am endowed with blameless bodily, verbal, and mental conduct, and so one enjoys the bliss of blamelessness. Then the next blessing is called katanyuta, gratitude, and gratitude is a free translation of the Pali, which comes from katta, which means what has been done. And then it, there's the verbal root nya, which means to know. And from this, we get nyuta, so, Katanyuta means literally knowing what has been done, knowing the benefits, the help, the assistance that others have conferred upon us. And There's a short sutta in which the Buddha says that there are two kinds of people who are rare in the world. What are these two? One who takes the initiative in helping others and one who is grateful and thankful. These are two kinds of persons who are rare in the world. Okay, so I have here a note on three stages in, we call it the deepening of gratitude. One is simply appreciation for favors that we have received from others. A second is appreciating the favors and then arousing the wish to return the kindness of others to what we call repay the debt of gratitude. And then the third factor is not simply appreciating the favors of others and wishing to return the favor, but honoring the goodness of the persons who have done the favors to us. And so, you know, we often take the favors and help that we receive from others for granted in our lives. And yet it helps to develop a very pure and clean mind by periodically from time to time just pausing and even doing this as a kind of reflective meditation, thinking about the favors and benefits we've received from others that we might have overlooked. So particularly as followers of Buddha Dharma, we could think, like, who was the first person that introduced me to the Buddha, to the Buddha Dharma? And think of the people, maybe, who have helped me all along the way in my practice and training in the Buddha Dharma. The teachers under whom I've studied, the friends along the path with whom I've discussed the Dharma, those who help, you know, set up, say, the center to Holding of classes and retreats. So that would be like gratitude, particularly connected with the Buddha Dharma. But even in our day to day life, you know, we could widen the circle of gratitude. Like, for example, (laughs) I think this still goes on where mail is still delivered to people's houses. You know, we have the postman or postwoman who comes walking. The Postal route every day we go to our mailbox, open the mailbox, and there's letters there, of course, if they're bills, then we feel grumbling <laughs> Then we grumble, but when we get letters that we want to expect, then we should think of the post uh, the postal service and the postman postwoman who delivers this. We go to the supermarket to buy food and other things there's the cashier who is working, you know, eight hours a day, and often they're working at very low wages. Or the restaurants we might go to, the waiters that serve the food. And so, just by reflecting, you know, we could build up a very wide recognition of the way our life depends upon the help and benefits we receive from countless people. And this will extend the circle, the sense of gratitude. Okay, then comes, so all of these that we've covered so far, these I call like building up virtues, reverence, humility, contentment, and gratitude. But now we come to a factor which is concerned with developing wisdom, And this is timely listening to the Dhamma, hearing the Dhamma. And we have to remember in the Buddha's time, there were no written books on the Dhamma. In fact, there was no writing. Writing was not used to to record the Dhamma. So to learn the Dhamma, one has to go listen to Dhamma talks. And so the Buddha explains different ways to listen to the Dhamma, the appropriate ways to listen to the Dhamma. I found one sutta, it speaks about three ways of listening to the Dhamma. And it describes the three types of people according to the way they listen to the Dhamma. The person with inverted wisdom, so this is a person who often goes to the monastery to listen to the Dhamma, and the monks teach him the Dhamma, but while he's sitting in his seat, he does not attend to the talk at the beginning, middle, or end and I know many, many people like that. And then they rise from their seat and they don't attend to the talk. And so the Buddha says, this is just this person is just like a pot that's been turned upside down. You try to pour water into it and the water will just run off the bottom of the pot and the pot remains empty. Then there is the person with lap-like wisdom. So again, this person often goes to the monastery to listen to the Dhamma, he hears the Dhamma. So this person, when he's sitting in his seat, he attends to the talk at the beginning, middle and end. But when he's gotten up and gone home, then he doesn't give any further consideration to what he's heard. And so it said that this person is like one who has maybe like a cloth on his lap with various grains in the cloth, sesame seeds or rice grains. Then, without mindfulness, he gets up from his seat and then the cloth falls off the lap and all of the grains get scattered. So this person loses the teaching he has heard. And then the third is the person with wide wisdom. Okay, so this is the person, again, who often goes to the monastery to listen to the Dhamma. He attends to the Dhamma at the beginning, middle, and end. Then when he arises from his seat, again he attends to that talk at the beginning, middle, and the end. So this, is like the, this person is like a pot that is upright, Um, So, when the water is poured into the pot, it will stay there, and then we can use that water on later occasions. Yeah, there are some... I don't want to go into this. These are like wrong ways to listen to the Dhamma, right ways to listen to the Dhamma. We could just take the right ways, Okay, quickly, not disparaging the speaker, thinking to cut down the, you know, some people go to listen to Dhamma with the idea of being fault finders, you know, to find what are the faults in the speaker. You know, he's bad voice, doesn't enunciate his words properly, he's mixing up the teachings, he has a limited grasp of the teaching, or one disparages oneself oh, I'm so stupid, I can't understand anything. One disparages the talk. This is, one does not disparage the talk. One is wise and intelligent. And this is important. This goes with humility. One does not imagine that one has understood what one has not understood. So one is always open-minded, wanting to understand more. Actually, I didn't find the passage that I want, but there's another passage which speaks about how to learn the Dhamma properly. And so listening to the Dhamma is actually the first step in what I would call a five-step program of Dhamma education. So first one listens to the Dhamma, but then the Buddha says one should retain in mind the Dhamma that one has heard. And a good way to retain that Dhamma in mind, you know, back in the Buddha's time, people had very sharp memories because it was not a literate culture. So the memory cells of the brain, the memory section, was much more active, much more, its absorbing capacity was much greater. Today it's atrophy to some extent because we're dependent on words, on, on a written language. So the good way to retain the Dhamma is... I see some people are doing it right now, taking notes. So then when you go home, don't think, what did Bhikkhu Bodhi say? Um, um, (laughs) Yeah, he's a very nice guy. Um, (laughs) But you have your notes so you can review them. Then you really come to understand all the implications of the Mangala Sutta. So retaining in mind, then the way to... Strengthen the memory, the third step, is reciting verbally. And this is practiced in the Buddhist countries like Sri Lanka, Burma, Thailand. To really learn the teachings well, the monks memorize as many teachings as they can. And there's a practice that's done in the evening of walking back and forth, like on the walkway, memorizing the texts. And then if you forget something, you go back to your book, look at it again then start walking back and forth, memorizing. So, third step, you memorize. Fourth step is to investigate the meaning of the text or the meaning of the teaching. And then the fifth step is to penetrate with wisdom. This is by practicing insight meditation. Then when true insight arises, then one penetrates the deep meaning with wisdom. Okay, so it's 11.30 now, so I think it's time that we can take our lunch, our meal, and then we can come back at 1.30 and then do the afternoon sessions. I said yesterday that I'll try to leave the full last afternoon session for questions, but I'm going more slowly than I expected. But I'll try to leave maybe a half an hour, the second half of the afternoon session for questions. Okay, so let us then break for the, um, for the morning.